one. Hello, Dan. Hello. How are you today? I'm well. Excellent. Uh. Tell us a little bit about your background, what you do, um. what you like, what you research. <laughs> Well, I'm um, I'm the director of a group called Saving Communities, and I'm president of the Council of Georgia's Organizations, which represents about 38 organizations and mostly holds annual conferences on uh, topics related to Georgia's economics. Excellent. Now, what exactly got you interested in Georgism in the first place? It's somewhat obscure nowadays, as far as economic systems go. Well, I was um, I was active. I guess one of the things is that I I had a some right wing mentoring in my early years, and then some left wing mentoring in my college years, and had to try to reconcile what was made sense and didn't make sense in both of them and uh, got involved with the United Farm Workers Union as a board and I kept running into these things that there's something not quite right and one of them was uh, clearly the United Farm or the farm workers were just terribly abused and um, in the conversations with the with the um, Chicano organizers who knew the situation firsthand, I found out that the the really big companies, um, particularly Gallo Wine and um, and some of the the really big lettuce and grape growers, were much worse than the small uh, the small farmers, and those that's who they were trying to organize and I said well you know after you're successful you're gonna want us all to buy a union which means you're gonna want us to buy from these big nasty companies that when you didn't have power were treating you very badly and and you're going to want us to not buy from the uh, from the small farmers who were always better to you and and he said, "Yeah, I suppose that's right, but we're trying to, you know, his priority was was protecting these these abused workers." And I didn't quit the movement, but uh, that always troubled me. And then I got um, involved in in some local housing issues having to do with slumlording and stuff, and I, I started thinking um, and saying to people, uh, you know, the problem is that we we fine these people for running their houses down, but we tax them for fixing their houses up, and we tax them every year. And we only fine them, you know, we we don't have enough people to go around fining them every year. So, so it's cheaper to pay the fine every ten years when you get caught, or do the remediation if they if they focus on you, and to always be just above that threshold of being fined because we punish people relentlessly for making improvements and um, and then the third thing was during that lettuce and grape boycott the Socialist Workers Party would come around to our pickets and start trying to sell their newspapers and stuff and 
and I said to them, uh, you're not helping, you know, you, you, you act like you're supporting us, but really making us look like a bunch of socialists does not help our cause with the consumer. And I, I, I said to them, look, if you will, if you will put your party materials away and come help us on the picket line and sincerely work with us, then when we have an event that is for the people who already support us, then we will, you know, we will invite you to that event, and you can promote your your stuff to to the people who are already sympathetic, and that worked out for them. But in in the process, after the picketing, we would go to uh, a local bar and have drinks and stuff, and and uh, they would explain Marxism to me. And I said to them, I said, well, you're telling us that the capitalists exploit people by hiring them, but you now you're telling me that they exploit people by laying them off. And, and I said, that's too zen for me. And uh, one day I was telling a woman, I used to move furniture for a living and uh, had my own little jitney furniture business. And this woman that I was going on about this stuff too, said, you're a Georgist. And I said, no, I'm not in anything. It's, you know, I was kind of offended by being labeled. And she says, no, you're a Georgist. Go read Henry George. And so I, I got his books out of the library and, um, and he was making all the arguments I was making quite often using the same examples and illustrations. So, so I, um, I found out that maybe I was a Georgist, and then the city of Pittsburgh, uh, they had an election, and the one guy who, you know, they they ask all these puff questions to people the day after the election. What what is the priorities for the city? And oh, jobs and crime, and you know, blah, blah, blah. and but this one guy said, we've run out of things to tax, and we're going to have to start shifting taxes to land value. So I called him up, and he said, go talk to the graded tax league, and I. I called the graded tax league and there was no answer and I kept calling them and there was no answer and I said uh, and I just on a fluke I I looked under Henry George in the phone book and there was the Henry George Foundation and it had the same phone number as the graded tax league so now it's pretty excited and finally got through to the guy and I was so excited I said I've been reading this is all the stuff I've been saying all along it I, it's it's like I was the reincarnation of Henry George or something. Well, he took my name and phone number and stuff, but uh, the guy who was the head of the organization uh, talked to him and asked if anybody called. And he said, yeah, some nutty thinks he's the reincarnation of Henry George. <laughs> <laughs> now, two things. So if I, hadn't if I hadn't persisted, I would have never made contact. I will want to say to clarify to everyone who isn't already familiar with Georgism, but first something I've noticed is many Georgists have had this experience of going from the far right to the far left or vice versa, bouncing back and forth. And this is a common narrative I've found, as well as this lack of dogmatism and refusal to be labeled. <laughs> And that's one of the reasons why you also see these numerous groups on Facebook that call themselves geo-libertarians or geo-mutualists, geo-this, geo-that. Geo-Keynesians. Geo-Keynesians, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, guess, 
I guess I'm an unhyphenated Georgist, although <laughs> George, George himself was very libertarian and, um, and was a greenbacker. But his emphasis was on land and the monopoly of land. Right, and that's one of the horrible things is that he is frequently grouped with socialists by people who look back and see his influence on the progressive movement in America because nothing could be farther from the truth. The man was very much in favor of the free market and understood its power. Yeah, and, and basically, I mean, I have the same problem, but George would, George would be unabashed in telling uh, right-wing capitalists what was wrong with them. And so their their reaction is, oh, you're some kind of a communist. And then he would he would tell the socialists and the communists what was wrong with what they were saying. And he would be very measured in it. He would also tell them, you know, these things they're right that you're saying, but you can't you can't impose it from a, from a centralized state or these. You know, he said voluntary socialism is just fine. He says, I don't think it'll happen without a strong spiritual sense that the, you know, the, the before we communal go, societies that worked were very spiritual in one way or another. Before we go forward, earlier you were mentioning the way that we penalize people for making improvements. Could you quickly summarize a land value tax and why that does not do that? Well, conventional property tax, you... Um, you build an addition on your house, or you make a renovation, uh, or you build a, build a new building, any of these, you have to file building permits. And the building permits data is sent over to the assessors, and the assessors take that information as a trigger, and they go out and they inspect your property and they increase your assessment. In most of the country, we tax the value of the land and the value of the building at the same rate. So when you make an improvement to your building, um, you you get a tax increase for having made that improvement. And it's worse if you're in a poor district because the poor district because the real estate is very low value. The tax rate to get the same money because it costs just as much to pave a road in a poor municipalities and a rich municipality. The poor municipality has to have much higher rates. And so even though your the tax bill in a poor municipality isn't usually higher than it is in a rich municipality, the the penalty for improving is higher. And so the you know if you make a, an improvement in a poor municipality you you get hit really hard. So it, it it creates an incentive for slumlording in, in poor municipalities, and it's a much stronger incentive than it is anywhere else. Yes, and the underutilization of land is a great tragedy. I mentioned in anecdote my own experience to Nate in my interview of a fellow who absolutely refused to rent out his space at a reasonable rate because I was looking for a laboratory area. Mm -hmm. in a, he was just asking far too much <laughs> and he doesn't care he's perfectly willing to sit on the land and yeah and if the biggest drawback the the biggest reason people won't put their land to use is that it's a they're making a commitment and their 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 land is less fluid so you know if if um if it's in a poor neighborhood and and he gives somebody a 
especially for a commercial lease for a laboratory or something. He gives you a 10-year or a 20-year lease. Um, if you're going to take some land and build a building on it, you, you usually want at least a 20-year lease. And the, he's going to get a low rate because it's a rundown neighborhood. Well, if the neighborhood turns around, and five years later, he's saying, I could have gotten much higher rents out of this property, but I made the mistake of, of uh, you know, leasing it to this Alonzi guy, and 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 now that you know, now the neighborhood's getting much and much much better, and so it's a better deal for the guy who leased it, but it's a terrible deal for me. And you know, landlords don't really care about creating a better deal for the tenant; they want a better deal for themselves. So, uh, which is you know what everybody wants is right. a better and deal. And it was for perfectly themselves. rational on his part because I foresee that area becoming much wealthier in the next five years. And one of the reasons neighborhoods tend to get worse is when it looks like there's going to be a change in the next five or ten years. That's when that's when the, the neglect gets really bad. And and sometimes it's, you know, on the edge, you know, in Pittsburgh, the worst slums were that the Urban Redevelopment Authority came in and and uh messed it up a little bit but uh, the worst slums usually are right on the edge of the downtown area because if there's going to be skyscrapers here in 20 years there's really no point in putting a new roof on you know you, you might patch the roof or do what you can but you're always thinking in terms of well this neighborhood's going to get worse and worse until the new redevelopment comes and they build and part of the problem is then the people who are looking to do that, to make that redevelopment happen, they don't want to go in where there's all these problems. So you, you create a stalemate situation and blight, and um, until, until the Urban Redevelopment Authority comes in with eminent domain and, and uh, pushes all the poor people out and bulldozes the place flat, and then the redevelopment takes place with great hardship to a lot of poor people. Yeah, and the fact that eminent domain cases can drag on, depending on how badly the people want the neighborhood or how badly the government wants it. Yeah, well, eminent domain, there's two extremes. One is that somebody uh, knows how to work the media and play the victim and get uh, the Institute for Justice or some other conservative civil rights group to go in and protect him from uh, from the awful evil state and he ends up getting uh, I've seen cases where somebody got seven and a half million dollars for property that wasn't worth two million by any stretch and um, and on the other extreme you have people who don't know how to fight this who are who are poor and uneducated and they don't have the, the savvy to to make martyrs of themselves and they get uh, you know thirty thousand forty thousand dollars for a property that that should that they should have been offered a hundred thousand for right. so so eminent domain is 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 just um, and and it makes a lot of money for lawyers. 
<laughs> well, of course, they always profit. Always seem to win somehow there. But the left, of course, is, or at least portions of the left, are opposed to gentrification. And eminent domain is like the epitome of that. Yeah, well, eminent domain, you know, people tend to think in generalities. And I, I always say to them, well, you want jobs and you want housing, but you don't want gentrification. And gentrification is either the building of jobs or, or of housing. And really, the word gentrification means drawing richer people in. And what they're really opposed to is pushing poorer people out. And the eminent domain approach pushes poor people out as a prerequisite to to attracting richer people. Mm -hmm. And neighborhoods that turn around and gentrify naturally through market mechanisms don't have that problem at all. They uh, they've actually found that that fewer people when a neighborhood starts improving and becoming desirable, fewer of the original residents leave than in a, a comparable neighborhood that stayed stagnant. So, so market gentrification doesn't displace a lot of people. It's it's eminent domain that displaces people, but and subsidized projects. The problem is, in the popular mind, it has become a dirty word, and this is something Nate and I covered. People do not differentiate between a steady and beneficial sort of gentrification and this notion of just kicking out everyone who used to live in the neighborhood. Yeah. Well, it's it's partly it's partly that uh, property owners have learned to play the victim card quite a bit. Uh, the real victims of gentrification are the renters because they they just have to leave. You know, the rents start going up. The 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 government will reassess and raise taxes, but that's nothing compared to how landlords raise rents on tenants. So when a when a neighborhood gentrifies, the homeowners play the victim cards because they're dealing with government and government responds to that. But the tenants, the landlord doesn't care what the tenant's opinion of him is. He he's he sees that he can get a $1,200 rent from somebody else and his apartment's being occupied by somebody who's paying him a $600 rent and he's he's not going to continue that very long and he'll find a way to get rid of you and, and yes. uh, rent it out for 1200 But there are cities that impose rent limits and other regulations to prevent that from happening. Yeah, uh, New York City has rent control, and it it creates its own little can of worms. There's actually, there are actually detective agencies in New York who are rent control detectives. That's their. their <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, they, that's they advertise that we specialize in rent control fraud, and what they do is they find people who have secretly sublet their rent control department to somebody else for the for a higher rent. And the new person is paying less than the full market rent, or else he wouldn't participate in the conspiracy. And the old person is getting a payment, so the old person is paying the landlord, and then the new person's paying him, and all he's getting paid for just moving out. And um, you know, rent is a natural phenomenon, and it, it's artificially high when 
when you can create an artificial shortage. But it it's even even without that, rent is naturally um, responsive to the market, and you can't really get away with that. But what you can do is say we're going. The government's going to you know collect the rent through a land value tax, and then uh, the poor people who have no land can be compensated for that. In first of all, in that they wouldn't have taxes to pay if if the land value tax is paying a tax, then to that extent, then you don't have to have that tax on your wages or you don't have to have that tax on the buildings so more buildings get built. And if more buildings get built, the apartment rents will actually go down. Uh, even if the land rent is going up, um, you know, the apartment, because you can build a 100-unit apartment building where there were 10 houses. And the rent in each unit is that is lower, even though the land rent is higher. So, you know, it's one of those things that a lot of times when you try to interfere with the market, you make things worse. But if you don't do the things that are, you know, when you get right down to it, rent is socially created. Yes, and I was about to go back to the topic of holding on to land and land speculation, which are both still very relevant topics, especially in wake of the 2008 crisis. What exactly yeah, would well, Georges have to say about these things? Well, the, the, the leading, the state that leads the nation in total foreclosures since, there's a new leader every every month you say the leader this month was so and so but but if you take the aggregate from from 2008 when the when the uh, housing the housing market began to slide in 2005 mm -hmm. but it really fell apart in 2008 and if you look at the um, who has the worst foreclosures it was California Nevada and um, to a little bit Massachusetts and um, and Michigan and California has the most unaffordable housing in the nation well they passed prop 13 and they really seriously curtailed property taxes and it's not just that the property taxes are a small share of the total taxes in California it's that the landowners have a guarantee there's a constitutional amendment that means that municipality may never raise your taxes. So land speculators just rushed into California. Uh, within 18 months of the passage of Prop 13, that was just back in 1978, um, within 18 months, foreign land holding had doubled. And most of that was from Japan. Um, I'm from Pittsburgh, so we all, I'm always aware of the steel work, what the steel workers are doing. And uh, 1978 was the year that, that the owner of U.S. Steel um, announced that he was um, launching a campaign against Japanese dumping, that the Japanese were dumping Toyotas um, in order to get American dollars. Well, you know, my libertarian friend said, well, we're getting Toyotas and they're just getting money and we can always print more money but but it's not like they were just sitting on piles of money they were using that money to buy California land so 
whenever you look at foreign dumping, there's there's um, there's two things. Well, there's four things because they, they go in both directions. A country that's dumping products below uh, a reason a normal cost and profit is either trying to buy up land in another country or get that country in debt to them, which is what China is doing, or is on the opposite side of it, you know, the Irish were selling the Irish were starving and exporting food during the potato famines because England had grabbed up the land from them and they were exporting food to pay the rent. Um, and Brazil, for a long time, Brazil was dumping because they at that time were hopelessly in debt and so they weren't they weren't dumping to get an upper hand like China is. They were dumping because we had an upper hand on them and, and they had no choice but to push products out as quickly as possible to get money to pay the, the various creditor nations that were squeezing them. So uh, so these these things tie into to other things. When you allow people to speculate on your land, um, you're going to get that kind of behavior. You're going to get Japanese cars driving out American cars, um, not because they're better. Although it turns out that that Hondas and Hondas particularly were better cars, um, but they were also cheaper because they were willing to take less of a profit because Japanese businessmen really craved the opportunity to get American dollars and buy California land. Now, I've noticed something about the economic texts I've read so far, and by no means am I an expert, but I've read most of the canonical ones, uh, barring Das Kapital, which I wasn't able to finish, or stomach the... Uh, <laughs> After chapter two or three, I was like, nah, I'm not going to waste my time on this. But I've noticed the land itself is not really an issue. Most economists do not talk about it. It's like this missing part of the equation. Yeah, they, um, the classical liberals talked about land a lot. Adam Smith has a chapter the, on the rent of land is, is the name of the chapter, and he makes it very clear. Um, David Ricardo came up with a thing called the law of rent, mostly in response to Adam Smith, because Adam Smith, uh, Adam Smith advocated that we collect, we tax ground rents, which is the rent that the landlord charges the, the tenant, and it differs from house rents. If sometimes the tenant makes the improvement, sometimes the landlord builds a house and rents out the land and the building together. And Adam Smith said uh, that we should tax the ground rents, we shouldn't tax the house rents. And uh, so that was a precursor to to the Georges. But um, David Ricardo um, came up with the law of rent to demonstrate that Adam Smith was wrong in one regard. Um, Ricardo said you can't just tax whatever rent the landlord charges because the landlord will be less likely to go to the trouble of renting land out and a shortage of land will develop and that tax will be passed on to the tenant and higher rent. But if you tax all of the land, then the landlord will consider 
his idle land to be a burden and he'll put that on the market and it won't the the rent the tax won't be passed on to the tenant so that was his um that was his um contribution and John Stuart Mill said that that was the the pons asinorum which um doesn't sound like a good thing but it means that on which everything else rests in economics um that all economics rests on the the idea that um that rent is is the advantage that you get from having better land than the best land that can be had for free that was um ricardo's ricardo's analysis came up with the the idea of a a land margin it was the first time that that economists talked in terms of the margin and and it was originally the land margin well now we have marginal this and marginal that but we don't talk about the land margin anymore um we the english economists understood this mostly because they had colonies and unlike the spanish there was no gold in our colonies in in their colonies um and so they settled they used the colonies for settlement rather than for plundering gold and they interacted with the uh, native americans and we learned a lot of things we learned first of all that there were no poor american indians that uh that there were terribly poor europeans and awfully rich europeans but in in the american indians nobody was really poor and then even among the the even as the colonies developed there were no poor people in the colonies that there were um some people who were getting rich but nobody was horribly rich and um and nobody was horribly poor uh jefferson wrote that uh they they rarely saw a beggar and when they did it was somebody who hadn't been here very long and didn't understand how easy it was to make a living here compared to back in europe so there was a lot of analysis of that if you read john locke or adam smith or john stuart mill um uh, or any of the english economists um and the french ones too uh Turgot and Canet and well, really, uh, this goes back to the physiocrats. The yeah, physiocrats. yeah. Although John Locke preceded the physiocrats, um, uh, but but Adam Smith, Adam Smith basically drew a lot from the physiocrats, and I guess it was not the habit in those days to give a lot of credit. But he sometimes mentioned them. But he was his stuff was was straight out of uh, Canet and and Turgot. and um but all of those people made references to the american colonies and to the american indians and the concept of of the rent of land being the difference between that land and the best land that could be had for free that concept could not was not conceived without reference to the colonies because that's the only place where you could get free land there was no free land in continental europe there was no free land in england so to say well this the rent is just basically the difference between this and the best land you can have for free people would say well where's the best land i could have for free what are you talking about so that 
that awareness uh, came indirectly from the American Indians um, and and American Indian land tenure as well because uh, American Indians said you own the improvements um, they had a system of crop rotation which was basically that it was crop rotation without property they would farm a field and and after they farmed it a couple of times the soil would be depleted so they would just walk away from it and go clear another field and farm that which is what we do too but we do it within the the property confines of the the farm um, they just migrated it to another area and farmed a bunch of other land they were farmers they were not you know it's a myth that the American Indians were just uh, hunters and, and gatherers they uh, even in the Northeast they they had a good bit of farming they didn't have sophisticated farming they didn't have plows they didn't have the te technological advances that we had but right. they so you know, they had no large animals they could domesticate yeah and they but they cleared fields and they they planted and and uh they had controlled burns of forests so that uh and they timed these very carefully to be in wet seasons so that the 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 fire wouldn't uh run away from them well regarding but, the pons asinorum the bridge of jackasses it appears we didn't <laughs> cross it because i'm thinking about the major economists, Ricardo and Molses were all about land. Smith talks about it. Then Mill, and then after Mill, it just starts to fade a little bit. And I, yeah, I well, haven't read Marshall yet, his original. Um, well, what happened, and there's a good book on this called The Goose Step by um, Upton Sinclair, and another one called uh, The Corruption of Economics by, by Mason Gaffney. Um, Gaffney's a Georgist, and he he tends to make it a conspiracy against Henry George. I think it was a conspiracy against progressivism more generally. But the progressive movement grew out of the abolitionist movement, and it was very libertarian, not in the not in the right wing libertarian sense that we think of but in the sense that um, the abolitionist spirit was whenever there's an injustice there's something you can abolish so instead of the, where the socialistic program or the socialistic approach was always to have a program that we have to do this to help the poor people we have to do that to help the working people um, the abolitionist movement and the progressive movement was always well, if if they're held down, then they're they're held down by some sort of privilege, and we can abolish that. So prior to Henry George, you see people saying all the land should be given to homesteaders. That government should never sell land to large corporations. Um, and it was only after all the free land had been given out that people started saying, "Well, we have to tax these people who are holding all this land because." Ordinary people can't get any land because we've given it all to these big corporations. Um, railroads got the most, and um, and so Henry George was very much a product of the American experience. That uh, American exceptionalism was not that we were superior people, 
but that we had an exceptional experience. We got to see capitalism without a well-developed landlordism, where Europe never saw that. Um, Germany never. Germany didn't even have colonies. Germany was late to the to the yeah, um, plundering of the earth. And they did well, a not bit in China. Yeah. yeah, but not till the late 1800s. Yes, right. So, so you're looking at Marx. When, at the time Marx was writing, um, he and his his audience, which was basically German working people, had no experience with the idea of capitalism without landlords. And their experience was that the landlords had always treated them better when they were needed. And when capitalism came along and could produce so much more wealth with so fewer people, then, then the uh, ordinary people of Germany became uh, unnecessary and disposable. And they didn't have the experience that you know, America had, which is capitalism was great for the American people because the landlords weren't very entrenched. And ordinary people came from Europe to America, made enough money to become capitalists themselves, and had that expectation. And they were treated nicely by the bosses because there were so many opportunities that the bosses knew that Americans could leave. And uh, all that changed as the frontier closed. But it was in the institutional memory of Americans that when we had, when we, when we had cheap land and and free enterprise, we were all very well off. Um, the other country that that didn't fit the European mold was Ireland, because Ireland was suppressed more for military reasons than economic reasons. Um, the Irish were loyal to the Catholic monarchs and the Protestant monarchs had overthrown the Catholic monarchs, and the Irish were very rebellious, obnoxious, feisty people. I take pride in being among them, and um, and the, and Cromwell's notion was that they had to be suppressed. So English policy was to not allow capital to be developed in Ireland; that they were to be kept agrarian and poor. Just because if they became rich, they would be uh, a a power to contend with. So while Germany was blaming capitalism and F France was uh, torn, <laughs> um, England and Ireland saw that uh, landlordism was much more of a problem, and America saw that capitalism without landlordism was no problem at all. So when you start to get to the wisdom of Henry George and you compare him to Karl Marx, um, it's I think it's largely that the experience was different. Yeah, and and um, and it created. I mean, it 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 became very bureaucratic, which is you know if you want to the, the most compelling argument against Marxist flavored socialism is that it, it ends up being a, a system of, of uh, at best benevolent controls and they are they are um, they at least have to go through the pretense of caring about ordinary people where the the anti-marxist reactionaries Marx uh, spawned 
the Austrians are basically the Austrian movement was basically uh, an answer to the German school, and the German school was Marxist, and the uh, the Austrian school came up with a lot of things to show why Marx was wrong, and they overdid it. They they often replaced a Marxist half truth with a mirror opposite half truth. So, um, right. you know, they when were Marx prescient in some regards, for instance, they were able to. And the pretense of knowledge is the best way of summarizing that entire school. And their major insight is that you cannot micromanage things. And George realized that too. Yeah, yeah. And and um, but George George also realized that if you can't micromanage things, you have to come up with a system that's fundamentally fair. And you know, ordinary people can run their lives just fine if the system is fair. But if uh, if the land is monopolized by people who just grab it up quickly, um, then then the system is not going to be fair. And if you grant, there are things that are interferences with the market that different. Uh, I mean, the the Austrians are split on intellectual property, but they most of them um, most of them are, are fairly comfortable with the idea that the people who have grabbed up the land should be able to keep it. And the people who have no land, if they have to pay tribute forever to the people who have land, well, that's not such a bad thing because the people who have land will manage that land very intelligently. Um, according to them. According to them. And, and they have these utopian constructs, so you can't test it. You, you can't say, well, Look at how the landowners in uh, Central America, where the government is weak, and the landowners are strong, and they have these paramilitary, you know, private police forces that they, you know, the the anarcho-capitalists and the Austrians believe that without government, landlords would just get together and have uh, private police forces that would defend the rights of the landlords and their tenants. And it's no, it's the rights of the landlords against their tenants. Um, so in Central America, the, there have been these paramilitaries that go around exterminating indigenous people um, because, because they have pieces of paper that say that the indigenous people are on their land. Um, in Bogota, Colombia, the poor people live in the sewers and are hunted by uh, a paramilitary that's funded by the business community. And again, it's because, and they say, well, that's not a place with no government, and that's well, it's a place with a weak government, and you never actually get to no government. Oh, except for because, Somalia, sort of. Yeah. Warlords. Yeah. Yeah, but Somalia has competing governments, and so it it all it all gets kind of strange. But but I've always noticed how how. Um, the Austrians and the and the socialists are kind of mirror opposites of each other in that on the surface they seem to be saying the opposite thing but when you get to the premises underlying it they share the same premise um, they share the premise that everything must either be collective property or private property and the idea of an open commons that that neither the state nor you know, neither the state nor a private entity can keep you from using the commons is uh, 
that was believed by almost all societies before empire and the marxists and the and the uh, I, I usually use mises because mises was the most polemic of the of the austrians but the marxists and the mesians both believe that um that there's only the choice of private property or collective property they both believe that land and capital can be conflated um, they they do it for opposite reasons Marx conflated land with capital in order to condemn capital and Mises conflated land with capital in order to justify land so so they're in in doing these things that are opposite at the surface that their underlying premises are very much the same exactly one of the things that I say they have in common is they both seem to have an overabundance of faith in humanity because on one hand you have the Austrians <laughs> who believe people are going to generally act in a nice way and same with the neoclassical economists to a large extent and with the Marxists they believe there are certain people who are so good so pure that they can govern everyone like platonic yes. guardians so they're really yeah. not that not that dissimilar and I'm sure we're going to anger a lot of them by saying this well the other the other thing is that they're both systems of monopoly control that if you allow people to just grab up all the land and own it as time goes on the big landowners uh, push out the small landowners and and you end up with one giant corporate monopoly that governs everybody because it owns everything and under under uh, a Marxist model, you end up with with the bigger sin. Even if you try the the anarcho syndicalism and stuff, the bigger syndicates and the ones that you know the mining syndicate gets to sell you the value of the coal as well as the value of their own labor. Where the the manufacturing syndicate doesn't have any particular privileges. They don't own the lumber that they're making chairs out of or whatever. Um, the 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 Marxist model ends up with people governing everything and thereby owning it. So it's just it's just the difference of those who own should govern or those who govern should own. It's the same people in either case owning and governing everything. So there's a lot of deep similarities at the deeper level between these two extremes. And then you have the compromisers who have no particular ideology, but they are the people who own and who govern. And they work out a compromise that incorporates the worst of both ends. So when, when the right-wingers and the left-wingers fight each other and nobody sits down to say, let's reconcile these things and say, you know, the, the left is correct about you know some things and the right is correct about other things and let's really sit down and come up with a reconciliation of what's right if you don't do that then the power brokers will come up with compromises that work for them and they are almost always the worst of both worlds I, I when when Obama said we're we're never going to get anywhere with the Republicans but I've come up with a health care plan and it's supported by the hospital association, the pharmaceutical lobby, and Blue Cross. I knew we were screwed. <laughs> and <laughs> you know, it, 
It's like saying, here's a burglar alarm system that three out of four burglars recommend. And, and you know, but he was backed into that because the left was just dogmatically tied to single-payer health care. And the right was just dogmatically tied to not giving anybody anything. And it's obviously clear that the healthcare I don't even like to call them an industry because they're not that industrious, but the, the healthcare yeah, establishment <laughs> the healthcare establishment is is terribly privileged and corrupt. And nobody on on any of those, you know, neither the left nor the right nor the compromisers we're interested in saying, wait a second, in every other aspect of American business, if you tell me that I have to charge somebody else more in order to get your business, you know, like Blue Cross, uh, a, dentist, a dentist has to charge a walk-in customer $80 for, his to, for tooth cleaning in order to get $50 from the insurance provider. And if he charges the walk-ins fifty dollars, he is he's committing fraud against his contract. Well, that's called restraint of trade in every other business, and it's not allowed. And it's and hospitals have a charitable tax exempt status, and these hospitals will charge an uninsured person up to five times what the insurance companies pay. Now I and, would love I would love to discuss this topic in more depth at another time, but we don't want to veer too far off okay. Henry George. Next week, or the week after, I will be having okay. a lot of people in the biomedical field, and I will want someone on to discuss the bureaucracy and the monetary aspects of it, so that'll be good. Okay. But I yeah, was but... about to say that, based on what you said, based on some of my other conversations, and... Fred Fulvery's prediction of the housing crisis, it seems that Georgism is also a very powerful analytical tool in examining history and historical trends. Yeah, it is. And and uh, just to wrap up on the medical, it's just to tie it in a little bit, was George. George was generally against privilege of all sorts. And he ran, and when he was writing his books, it was all about land. Uh, he ran a newspaper called The Standard, and he was taking on all sorts of privileges. And the the underlying theme that can deal with, with you know, like the medical crisis seems to have nothing to do with land, but it has a lot to do with privileges that can be stripped away. And if you take that approach to almost any issue and say, before we concoct programs to make people better off, before we impose rent control on land, before we... Uh, before we start building affordable housing, government housing for poor people, what are the privileges that we can rip away? And privatizing the, the land rent is um, one of the two biggest privileges of all. It's George thought it was the biggest privilege. Um, some of his allies, uh, Terrence Powderly, who was the head of the Knights of Labor, thought that the uh, the power of banks to create money out of thin air and lend it into circulation was was just as big a privilege as as land monopoly was, and uh, and those two marched along as allies, but there was some strain because uh, the Georgists always said, "Nah, the land the 
Land Monopoly is the big one. You know, yours is nice, but ours is the big one. And that's unfortunate because they would have uh, cooperated far better had they um, acknowledged that they were more or less co-equal. I don't really remember in Progress and Poverty, George, going into great detail about monetary theory, even though writers before him had, or in no, he, for that matter. Yeah, he did more in the Science and Political Economy was his last book. And uh, he has some things in, there's a chapter in social problems called Public Debts and Indirect Taxation. And um, he goes into it a little bit there. And he says things in passing like, uh, you know, the, the bank created credit, bank credit contracts just when the economy needs more money in the circulation. And he just mentioned, he just said that without really attaching much importance to it. Um, and it was, uh, it was really his allies that were much bigger on uh, monetary reform. And one of the things I've also noticed, and you may have noticed as well, is that there are a lot of futurists in the Georges groups, at least on Facebook anyway. And I think one of the reasons why that is is because in ways he anticipated systems theory. I mean, I'm not saying he thought of it or even realized the implications of what he was doing, but here he is making a, what's really a fairly small alteration in policy that has these radical consequences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and um, yeah, we, we get, we get uh, accused of reducing George's message to a mere fiscal reform uh, by by more socialist uh, tra fellow travelers of the George's movement, and it's like, well, because that's what wins. You know, we have 17 cities in Pennsylvania that have um, shifted from property tax to land value tax, and they've all done it incrementally, and they're all having building booms and. And now other states are taking notice, and and people are uh, being asked to go and testify at public hearings in these other states. But the question is, should you win small or lose big? And and we've tried both, and and winning small seems to have worked a little better. Better than um, the because Soviet Union, that's for sure. Yeah, well, the Soviet. I mean, the Soviet Union. I think it's like it's unfair to uh, to say to you know Marxists or whatever says the Soviet Union that's that's your Marxism and it's no it was taken over by a crazy person and and uh, I mean there was a fascist ideology before Hitler too yes that was the one thing you you kept noticing that Nate was using the word and uh, I don't use the word at all because because it has become such a shibboleth of the of the left but exactly. uh, but there was a fascist uh, ideology prior to Hitler and Mussolini and all these people and it's interesting to actually look at what it was because it it was um, I think the people who advocated it did not contemplate that it would become a a warmongering uh, 
militaristic, nationalistic, yeah. and in the cases of Romania, Hungary, and Germany, racist ideology. Yeah, and and the essence, if you look at the 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 fascist economists of the 1920s, um, before these people were in power, the essence of fascism can be summed up in the term public-private partnership. And and whenever I hear somebody say public-private partnership, I'm, I'm like, bite your tongue because if you call them fascist, they'll just, they'll just dismiss you. But that's what fascism was. was it was um, the idea that, that all these large corporations could be bundled together, which is what the fascists was a bundle of sticks. You bundle them all together and you make them all stronger and they can go out and they can produce and they can have more market domination uh, at a global level so your uh, your cartelized companies can can be far more powerful and and um, to equate fascism with Hitler and Mussolini but it is fair to say how do you prevent that from how do you prevent communism from deteriorating into Stalinism how do you prevent fascism from deteriorating into uh, Hitlerism and how do that's you prevent the a constitutional republic from deteriorating into a corporatist system they're all good questions <laughs> and it points yeah. back to the iron law of oligarchy which is something that came to me at a very early age and I was very sad to see that someone else had thought of it before <laughs> me. But eventually it seems that any system of government will turn into something like an oligarchy, which a small number of people have the lion's share of power. Yeah, and that gets us into another tangent of democratic process because um, we equate democracy with elections, but the Greeks didn't have elections. Um, the common law societies didn't have elections. They relied heavily on juries. Uh, the American Indians, um, the American Indians were matriarchal, and I never understood how, if they were matriarchal, how come all the people I see speaking on behalf of American Indians were men? And it turns out that in their their system um, was that. The leaders were all men, but only the women chose them. So the women would get together and discuss who they trusted to be the general chief, who they trusted to be the war chief, and then they would announce their choice. And the men, men had no say in that democratic process except that they might... Uh, try to plant some ideas in into the minds of the women but the women sat down deliberated on this and sorted it all out and and so ultimately um, the women the women were the in charge and if you think of an elected official as a public service the men were the public servants of the women in American Indian society it's a completely different approach from the normative kind of feminism of trying to make men and women the same, um, but it's an interesting, an interesting balance of power that it was. The men course, had all the physical power, 
and were more assertive and more aggressive. So the women were given all of the um, democratic power. There's quite a bit of variety between tribes, of course. Many, many yeah. different peoples on the American continent, different languages, customs, cultures, and I'm only vaguely familiar with about three or four different tribes. The Georgist idea of free trade, which is very similar to the um, classical liberal idea of free trade, was, was trade being free of privilege. And so I don't even say free trade anymore. I say privilege-free trade, that, that you must strip the privilege away from the trade. The, the modern right-wing idea of free trade is trade that is free of fetters on privilege. And that's a, almost the opposite of what the classical liberals were saying. They weren't saying there should be no laws. There's, they were saying there should be no privileges. So, um, so when you have uh, a trade imbalance, I mean, you look at um, – and George wrote a book called Protection or Free Trade. And um, he was he was feuding with socialists at the time, and the book suffers in in one particular way, which is around chapter twenty. He he starts saying the real weakness of free trade because he had up up to the time he had devastated the case against protection, and uh, he he has a chapter called the weakness of free trade and the real strength of protection, and then there's a chapter called true free trade. And if you start reading the book with those, you know, with those chapters, and go to the end, you get a much clearer picture of what he meant by free trade. Then, when you go back and read the beginning of the book, it all makes sense to you, even if you're not a free trader in the current context. But the Mises, the Mises Institute uh, has his protection of free trade is online from the Mises Institute, um, and my my sense of it is is the conservatives read up to chapter read up to that chapter in true free trade and then they kind of lose interest because they got what they wanted and liberals never get through the the beginning of it so i always recommend to, to people especially to people on the left go read start with the two chapters before two, true free trade read that read to the end and then go back and the beginning of it will make sense but trade is between people, not between countries. And I can't trade with you unless I, you know, if I want to sell something to you, I should be um, registering, getting a mercantile license, uh, collecting and paying sales tax, paying income tax on any profit that I made, uh, on and on and on, that people within the United States cannot freely trade with each other. But they came up with these free trade treaties as if trade was between the United States and Canada or the United States and the Pacific Rim countries or whatever. And But there are ramifications for whole countries. And we were just talking about the Japanese buying up yeah. California. Yeah, but it's it's one of those things where you're taxing your own production. You're taxing your own internal trade, and then you say we're not going to tax Chinese production, and we have no idea what taxes they're levying, and and uh, 
but this Chinese product comes into the United States and it's not building any American roads and it's not doing all these things that American and it may be dangerous it may be and that's okay. where yeah. yeah and that's where the difference between trade laws and trade privileges come in that that privilege free trade would would mean um, you can't have a you know you can't have a law that says we're not going to allow anybody else to sell cars in the United States because we want to protect the big three automakers um, that would that would be giving the big three automakers a privilege but it's nothing wrong there's nothing uh, unfree about saying a Japanese or Korean or Chinese car has to meet the same safety standards and and everything that an American car has to meet uh, that's there's no privilege there it's the same set of rules for everybody now sometimes those rules are stupid but but stupidity and, and corruption are two different things and and privilege is corrupt as it's it's usually stupid as well but uh, ordinary laws that are applied to everybody um, they're sometimes stupid but stupidity can be corrected because if there's no privilege involved it's in everybody's interest to correct the stupidities well there's institutional sluggishness that can make most yes. anything difficult to correct yes and and there's people get get up ahead of steam and become loyal to something so I mean, we have cafe standards that have actually reduced uh, the cafe standards are few, the the end of that is fuel efficiency I forget what the something is but it's for fuel efficiency and we imposed all these fuel efficiency requirements on automobiles but obviously you you have to have lower standards for trucks and SUVs because they second. can't possibly make the grade I was saying that the cafe standards because they were arbitrary um, led to people buying more SUVs and light trucks and so often for for normal use that they could have done in, a, in an ordinary car and the fuel mileage actually got worse the, now the Georgist approach to this is to say that there's there's resource depletion and there's pollution and we want you to get better mileage for, because we don't want to use up all the the oil that's the, the resource depletion part of it and the pollution part of it is we want you to have pollution controls on your car so that you don't spew stuff in the air and the, the Georgia's approach to this is to say well the the natural resources belong to everybody so we have a right to charge you a hefty royalty when you consume natural resources so we could put a, a, a fairly serious tax on a barrel of oil and uh, whether it's taken from here or from somewhere else um, we can I I would let the other countries tax their own oil but if they they don't you know one of the things the European Union does with their value-added taxes they say um, you can't charge a tariff for an import within the within the European Union you can't charge us a tariff on your on a product unless in your own country you charge a value-added tax to your own people so we could tell you that same thing with natural resources we could say we're gonna charge fifty dollars a barrel for oil and we're gonna charge fifty dollars a barrel for imports but if you if you 
you know, if Saudi Arabia charges a royalty for their own oil and they distribute it to all the people that live there, um, or or they use it for the benefit of all the people that live there, and then we'll re we'll reduce your payment by that amount. But it ends up making the price of gasoline higher, and people will uh, improve their fuel efficiency on their own. When the gas price of gas got up over four dollars, the sale of SUVs and Jeeps and uh, light trucks just came to a roaring screeching halt. And people started looking for those little high-efficiency cars. And the, the cafe standards people had insisted that the market mechanisms don't work, that you have to mandate this. But here was the price of gasoline going up by about a buck and a half over what it is now. And everybody moved away from the gas-guzzling vehicles. So, you know, the, those market mechanisms work. So the Georgists would say you charge a high royalty for the oil. Now pollution is basically, it's the same idea of the earth as a commons, so is the air and the water. So if you're polluting the air, the Georgist way of expressing that is our enjoyment of the air is diminished because it's being used as a warehouse for your, for your sulfur dioxide or whatever's coming out of your automobile exhaust. So you have to pay us a tax to compensate us for putting your crap in our air. And we can assess that however we, you know, the, some things have to be decided collectively because it's all of us who breathe the air. It's not like, you know, when you hold a piece of land, you hold it individually and another person who wanted that land can bid for it and the market can set the price. But with air, there's there's hardly a market mechanism for that. So we just decide. And at some point, we'd say, well, if we set the price too high, we can't afford to drive anywhere, and it's, it's really not worth it. And if we set the price too low, then, it's, then we get too much pollution. But that's the way to do it without micromanaging. It's the, the Georgist approach applied to these things. Now, George didn't do that because he was in the 1800s, and people in the 1800s didn't have much of a concept that we would run out of anything. Although, just a quick little anecdote, George did mention solar power in one of his essays, something like solar. He was just speculating wildly, but it is fairly impressive. He, yeah, he's, he does... Um... I always, always wondered if, if they had drugs in Henry George's day because he comes out with oh, some yes. things every once in a while that are, that are very, very speculative. Um, uh, most, uh, a great number of English poets and writers in the 1800s were addicted to laudanum. French writers and poets, hashish, you have folks like Prost, you have Baudelaire, however you pronounce his name, uh, Rimbaud, of course, the bad boy of French poetry. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. I I don't think he uh I don't think he did anything. He he always seemed very straight-laced to me. Well, there were patent medicines then and he yes. likely took morphine or heroin at some point in his life to suppress a cough. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah, morphine and codeine. But um well, after the Civil War, heroin was a uh, over-the-counter drug that people could buy. 
it it uh, I mean its addictive properties quickly became apparent, but it was available to people. Hmm. This of course was before the FDA, before any sort of regulatory agencies. Yeah, I well, anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> another digression. Yeah, another digression. I, um, yeah, he did. Th he um, he has a chapter called "City and Country" in uh, in the it's the la it's the second last chapter in Social Problems, and it it uh, it really talks about the ecological impact of what we do. He talks about exhaustive agriculture and and says that uh, that we're flushing millions of tons of fertility into the ocean. So there's now I think there might have been more awareness of that in his time because we had not had the petrochemical revolution that that we are now relying on. So that exhaustive agriculture was a much more serious problem. Um, in his day, but there's a lot of things in there that that uh, seem much more applicable to today than you would have expected somebody writing in the 1880s to come up with. Yes, and that it sort of adds to the idea that he was an early systems thinker, because he yeah, covered a well, broad range of topics and he thought about their implications. I mean, a lot like John Stuart Mill who was also a systems thinker before the term existed. Yeah, and and well, and in general, the classical liberals, Ricardo and, and um, Adam Smith and John Locke, very much into analyzing the way things interacted. And part of that is they were writing for, you know, there was no democracy in their time. So they were writing for the nobles, and when you see the things that Adam Smith says about uh, landlords, you have to think: well, not only, not only would this be a a pretty nervy thing to say today, but it was an even nervier thing to say when the only people who read that kind of stuff were landlords, and all the policymakers were landlords, and the the tenants had no impact on on policy at all it was all the landlords and you see him and you see John Locke doing the same thing of selling this this idea that the landlord should pay all the taxes as being in the best interest of the landlords um, and Marx went after them for that and just you know it was as if as if Smith and Locke and all of them didn't care about the people. They only cared about what was in the best interest of their landlords. And I look at this and say, well, that's who was reading the book. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, that was, and I don't care for Marx at all. And I think you can already tell that, but he was a very erudite man, albeit a stubborn and often closed minded one. And it seems like he would have, realized that there was a context to all of these writings and to everything. But I suppose Marxists only recognize a context when they're trying to justify their own actions. <laughs> or the actions of the people who claim to be Marxists. Well, I think the main thing is that um, 
that there's a lot of anger in Marx's writing, and it's, so he attracts angry people. And um, and I think that's more so in the United States. I was just in Sweden. I was on a tour. Um, I was on a lecture tour and speaking to Swedish in five or six different Swedish cities about various aspects of land value tax and how it would apply to Sweden. Um, there's a party called it's it, in, it's Enhet, but in English it's the Oneness Party, and they're, they're um, you know in a way it sounds like the, we had an old the Transcendental Meditation Party that I think it kind of grew out of something that was a little flaky, but it it uh, grew into a they have a very holistic approach to things, and now that they're getting serious about politics, they are uh, looking for for solutions. And the um, the thing that I noticed is that they were they had w uh, an ability to work with socialists and conservatives, and that the Swedish socialists are just much better people than the American socialists. They are just they are they are not angry people. They are not uh, judgmental. They are in a problem-solving mode. And I think that success does that. That that the you know that the uh, you know the Mormons are not like Brigham Young used to be or or Joseph Smith, and and that if you if you succeed, you start common sense starts to take over and and things start to work. Um, but American socialists, I there was a, an Ethiopian socialist living in my house one day and I was complaining about socialists and, and he said you only have experience with American socialists and he said American socialists are the dumbest socialists on the planet and later on it occurred to me that that was probably true because the dumbest capitalist on the planet is a Russian capitalist named Ayn Rand <laughs> and, and she she understands nothing about capitalism, and the people that she used as her the role models for her heroes in Atlas Shrugged were their their personal attitude about selfishness was completely the opposite of the ones that she assigned her characters. But she, you know, the she had her her characters were Dagny Taggart. The main characters in Atlas Shrugged were Dagny Taggart and Hank Reardon. Who had a sexual relationship, but they they were also kind of business partners. Well, she lived in the company town of Tom Johnson and Arthur Moxham, and while Dagny Taggart had a railroad monopoly, Tom Johnson had a streetcar monopoly. And Arthur Moxham, uh, when Hank Reardon and Atlas Shrugged came up with Reardon Metals, which is a new improved metal for steel for railroad rails. Turns out that Tom Johnson's partner Arthur Moxham had come up with a new way to roll um, steel rails because up to that time streetcars were running on iron rails, and so they revolutionized the streetcar business. And there's just parallel after parallel between these these two characters and the real life counterparts, and that didn't strike me till I went to the Lorraine, Ohio Historical Museum to learn more about Tom Johnson, and they said oh, we had. We have other famous people from Lorraine, Ohio. Uh, Ayn Rand lived in Lorraine, Ohio. Mm -hmm. 
No, but she was Russian and was so hostile toward toward um, communism People? because of her. You know, they had fled fled Russia um, after the communist revolution, and and it was before Stalin was in power. But it was, you know, Lenin was already a problem. Um, and she came with this extreme antipathy to to anything communist, and it led her to really ridiculously romanticize capitalism and romanticize the selfish motives of capitalists. But these real capitalists had no such motives. In fact, Tom Johnson became convinced that that he had made his fortune in in streetcars partly off of superior management, but partly off of the fact that streetcar the streetcar franchises were franchises were were monopolies and he spent a good deal of his fortune both supporting Henry George who wanted to abolish monopoly generally and uh trying to give away his streetcar franchises and trying to get municipalities to take over the streetcars and run them for the benefit of the municipalities and he said the streetcars could be free and uh, his private sector example, he said, you know, when you go into an, a, a tall a skyscraper, which at that time was, you know, um, you know, from the Oklahoma thing, they went and built a skyscraper seven stories high. Uh, Tom Johnson said, when you you don't pay the elevator operator to ride up to the skyscraper, the skyscraper owner doesn't give a, an elevator franchise to people so they can charge what they want to go up and down the elevators. The the owner of the building pays for the elevators by renting out space in the building. And he said if cities would do that, if they would just tax the land, uh, what is a trolley line except a horizontal elevator? So, so he drew that lesson from the private sector, but he said, you know, municipal governments should own their own streetcar lines. I actually wrote an essay for the Atlas Shrugged contest that was due. Son of a bitch. <laughs> I was going to say, I wrote an essay for the Atlas Shrugged contest sponsored by the Ayn Rand Institute. And I never liked the book as much as The Fountainhead, which I read when I was 15. I think somehow she regressed as a writer and as a thinker. Because with the Fountainhead, she was riffing off of Nietzsche to a large extent. And then after she rebelled against Nietzsche, she was just left to her own devices. And she gave herself enough rope to hang herself, which she did. <laughs> but I'd gladly take their money if they choose my essay. Yeah. Well, everybody said that the Fountainhead was was patterned after Frank Lloyd Wright. And Frank Lloyd Wright wrote, read and said, I would... I would I would have been out of business in a month if I had that guy's attitude. <laughs> yeah, you simply can't act that way. It's a fantasy. A lot of people want to act that way if they're professionals, but you only gain that sort of liberty once you have already become successful. Yeah. And even then, even then, uh, you know, when John Lennon said he was more popular than Jesus. Um... <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that was just stupid. 
of course, John Lennon claims to have dropped LSD over a thousand times, so that might explain some of his behavior. Yeah. It also, it also was in context. Again, context is everything. He was, uh, he was kind of lamenting that. He was talking about how what a pop culture we had deteriorated into. So it it, it wasn't it wasn't bragging. It was um, saying what is wrong with this. What is wrong with this planet that somebody like me would be more popular than Jesus? Yeah, but unfortunately, you just have to have the foresight to stay away from certain topics. <laughs> if you're if you're a figure like John Lennon, if you're just some guy on the internet, most people don't really care one way or another. Yeah, so we so we can say pretty outrageous things. <laughs> <laughs> no, I add the disclaimer that the opinions of my well, I need to start adding it, are not my own. <laughs> and well, that, there you are. That's right. Oh. Well, yeah. we could talk about unemployment and inflation. Well, unemployment's easy, because uh, every vacant lot is a lot that could be providing either a job or housing. There so. You go. So that it's, you know, they're people are not unemployed because there's nothing to do. People are not unemployed because we have everything we want and don't need any more. Uh, obviously, the people who are unemployed don't have everything they want, and they could be working to make the things they want, if not for the, the monopolization of land. They don't need to be serving us or serving a, a they don't need to be serving richer people. That in, in the natural order of things, people serve themselves and they serve each other. So, um, you know, Thomas Jefferson said this long before Henry George, uh, he was in France and saw all the people left begging and stuff and he he said uh, that it was because the landlords were so wealthy that they they had land they didn't even want to bother with putting it to use, so they just let it sit idle. And he Jefferson said, whenever in any country there are, uh, there is idle land and unemployed poor, it is clear that the laws of property have been so far extended as to violate natural right. And I think I got that quote exact, but. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's um, it's one of those things that was much more obvious to early Americans that unemployment was a function of land monopoly because we didn't have any, and Europe had terrible unemployment. So um, so it was not uh, George wrote about it and and wrote about it very analytically, but it was obvious to Tom Paine and Thomas Jefferson and and uh, William Penn and Ben Franklin. Uh, Penn wasn't really over here very much. He visited over here, but uh, but he was given the the entire state of Pennsylvania, which went westward forever, was given to William Penn. Um, we, we drew the the vertical line at the western boundary of Pennsylvania after the fact, but the king basically gave William Penn a a, a band of 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 uh, latitude that just went theoretically went to the west coast. Now it went 
went into French occupied or French controlled territory and and uh, and you know the Indians were relevant the kings don't worry about Aboriginal people they to them Aboriginal people are, are like deer you know they're there but they don't matter the interesting thing the thing they never tell you about William Penn was that they say well they gave Pennsylvania to William Penn because the king owed Penn's father 13 million pounds um, that was mentioned in my American history textbook yeah what they don't mention was that <laughs> William Penn William Penn had been arrested and tried for heresy for preaching Quakerism and criticizing the the Church of England and um, and the, the jury refused to convict and the this is where jury nullification began the the Lord Mayor of London for some reason had been the trial judge and he he uh, rejected the jury's acquittal and said you go back in and get and stay there till you can give me a proper verdict and two of the jurors absolutely refused and were jailed for almost a year before a high court uh, said no you cannot put a juror in jail for giving you a verdict you don't like and that was like the the big advance I don't know if it was the very first case of jury nullification but it was it was the case that that set jury nullification in stone and now the king had all had William Penn and all his Quakers preaching heresy in England and needed to get rid of them and he thought well if I give Pennsylvania to if I give all this land which was not called Pennsylvania till they gave it to him, we gave it to William Penn maybe he and his Quakers will just go there and and be out of our hair in England so that's kind of how he got Pennsylvania and uh, but he said that the rent of land would create a fund that would leave not a beggar so he he thought that sharing the rent of land would completely eliminate poverty. It sounds as though you and Dr. Roshan agree about unemployment to some extent, except of course for the land value bit, because he is a post-Keynesian. My concern about unemployment and my objection to some people that it can be created is that slowly and steadily more and more jobs demand an increasing number of skills that people may or may not be able to obtain realistically. So yeah. for now that may be true, but in 20 years it's hard to tell mm -hmm. depending on how many processes become automated. Yeah, and and the, there's two things about automation. One is that automation consumes natural resources. So there are some jobs that should be automated. Um, mine working, you know, coal mining should be automated. It's dangerous. It's it's hazardous to your health. It's damp. It's miserable. Um, just from the just from being in a cold, wet environment, crawling on your knees. I mean, forget about the black lung and the mine collapses and all that stuff. People who've worked the mines all their lives are usually arthritic and hunched over and and have a very difficult time of it so I'm all for automation and it makes sense no matter what the you know 
you're consuming natural resources, so what? But in many cases, we automate because we have put a tax wedge on human labor so that when you hire, a, you know, when I was working for myself as a Jitney furniture mover, I said, you know, what if I was paying taxes and and giving myself, you know, eight paid holidays a year and two weeks vacation and, and forget about health care because I wasn't giving myself that self-employed either. But giving myself those things and I had to pay unemployment compensation and uh, all these things. And I figured out that to have a take-home pay of $3 an hour, I had to pay myself $10 an hour. And uh, and then I raised my rates. <laughs> you know, yes, I realized that there's a huge difference between what the employee gets and what the employer pays. And that makes the employer want to automate the system more than he would do if if not for these tax incentives. So... I think a lot of, you know, I mean, Amish carpenters are, are quite competitive. Yes. And without an income tax or a sales tax, more people would be employed is the essential argument. Yeah. Yeah. And, and now, uh, but if we just abolish those taxes, if we, if we got money from heaven, um, which is kind of what... Uh, the Federal Reserve is. That's heaven. Yeah, it's kind of what the modern monetary theorists advocate, which is that we can just print the money and spend it. And to a degree, you could do that. Uh, if you stop the banks from printing money and lending it, you can do a lot more of it. But even if we did that, rents would go up because we would all have more money and the landlords, you know, landlords charge whatever the market will bear. There is no production cost for land. So there's some production costs for buildings, but the landlord is the, you know, the building owner had to buy the land from the landlord. And if the landlord raises the price, the building owner has to raise his price too. So in the long run, if you don't tax away the land monopoly, the, the price of land will absorb everything. That was Henry George's answer to the greenbackers was, well, you can solve that problem and it'll just raise rents. Could you uh, um, explain a little bit about that controversy with the Greenbackers and the others? I'm not sure if everyone has taken an American history course recently. <laughs> okay, well, uh, the Greenback movement started because um, the bankers were gouging Lincoln in the Civil War and making him pay 30%, someone at 36%, to borrow the money to fight the South. And Lincoln said, the heck with this, I'll just print the money. And he printed uh, the greenback dollar. The The bankers were furious, and the, the gold standard people still say that he created this inflationary, this big inflation, but there was just a, there was a spike. There was a, a spike of 250% uh, for one year, and then it dropped back down again. But if you look at the, what went up, the price of gold went up 800%. So, so uh, there would have been a, a bigger deflation if we had tried to rely on gold. And the other thing that went up, the cotton went up 700%. Well, you you just went to war with the cotton producers, so you're not going to get cheap cotton. Um, and commodities in general were fairly stable even during that, that time. 
But Lincoln just printed the money, spent it into circulation, and then taxed it back out of circulation, which is the modern monetary theory of how to do that. Um, he did not he did not strip the bank's power to create money out of thin air and lend it to people, which is the other half of that equation. Um, after the war, though, a lot of people said this greenback system is a much better system, and uh, Congressman Benjamin Butler of Massachusetts um, and a lot of other people said that this is the right way to issue money. That the government should create the money, it should just print it and put it into circulation, and it should prevent inflation by taking by taxing it back out. And they said banks should not be able to create money. They should if they want if they want to create bank credit, that's fine, but it should not be legal tender. Because it, it's, um, if you wanted to make it a private enterprise um, and you want to say, I, you know, this bank is good for X millions of dollars, well, it's a banknote and people aren't going to take it because it, you can't pay your taxes with it. So if the bank is under, you're stuck with a worthless piece of paper. Um, and that, that got to be very popular. And there was a, a, it was called the crime of 1873 was uh, one of these midnight sessions in Congress when a lot of the congressmen weren't there they the banks got them to go back to the gold standard and retire a lot of the greenbacks not all of them but they started retiring greenbacks it was a massive recession and um, and this created a very strong movement for greenback dollars so what would George or his modern Georges, of course you can't speak for all of them because there's a lot of variety, think of gold or Bitcoin for that matter? Uh, well, Fred Foldvery is an Austrian Georgist and he, he has a lot of faith in the gold standard. And uh, we had a monetary panel at the last conference and I was um, against the gold standard. I'm very much a greenbacker Georgist. Um, the I'm a libertarian enough to say that I'm I'm willing to allow Bitcoin. I don't think that we should stop these things from existing. I think the I think Bitcoin is like the beanie babies of currency, and the, you know almost everybody who trades Bitcoin is speculating on it rather than you know transacting yes. business on it. Well, and, uh, yes and no. There are certain goods that you would prefer to purchase with Bitcoin. And so their clandestine <laughs> uses, yes, for the most part, but uses nevertheless. And mm -hmm. I don't foresee Bitcoin itself being the next great currency, but perhaps something like it, some improvement on it. Yeah. Um... I think there's a natural relationship between government and coins, but a land trust can issue can issue a currency too. And a land trust is like a quasi-government. When you get right down to it, even a condominium association is like a little quasi-government. Um, but the the ability to collect rent is the ability to redeem a currency because people can always pay their rent with it. And the difference between rent and uh, wages and, and capital and stuff is that it doesn't depend on people continuing to honor their commitments. The, the, um, 
the land is encumbered and you can't sell the land until you pay off the people who who you've issued currency to so you you have a situation where it doesn't matter if the landowner dies and somebody else inherits the land because he then inherits the obligation to accept this currency as rent um, so a, a large consortium of landowners can issue a private currency the same as the government can and it has the same stability based on the you know government you pay government taxes but when you get right down to it the rental value of the land is what makes you willing to do that because otherwise you have to leave you know if you don't pay your taxes to to Canada and you leave Canada they they can't extradite you very well for non-payment of taxes they could just seize your property within Canada looking for a, a, a sensible way to wrap up <laughs> well that's what that's what the editing table is for, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the figurative table, of course. I I was born long after people had to snip things and do all that stuff, which just seems like such a massive yes. pain. I yeah, I, I, I have to explain to young people that cut and paste actually meant with scissors and glue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh. <laughs> Man, that would have been terrible. I did it. <laughs> I wrote many a paper. I I just uh, you know you write it and then you and then you get some blank paper and you cut paragraphs out and you slap them on there. And then when you're all done, you write it again. I hate to end the podcast abruptly, but we ran out of time. Good night, ladies and gentlemen. Next, we have an interview with F Dr. Fred Fulvery and with the architect, Joey Young. Stay tuned. Good night. Shabeke. Buenos noches. Whatever. Good night.